This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, that's no asteroid, it's a spaceship! Hello everyone, welcome back to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review critique show where we're putting the humanities back into science fiction. My name is Gabe and I am joined as always by my friend and co-host Dr. Izix. Hi! And this week we watched an utterly squandered premise. A bit. <laughs> this is possibly the longest episode title in television history. Probably pretty close actually, yeah. <laughs> this is called Four... The world is hollow, and I have touched the sky. That's 11 words there. It's a great title. I really like it. It's poetic. It's cool. It evokes some imagery. It's nice. And and it even gets name dropped in the episode. So many times in such a stupid <laughs> way that it made me actively hate it. Uh-oh, that's bad. <laughs> uh, I guess my overall reaction is it was okay. Uh, not any you know i didn't think it was a terrible episode uh also didn't particularly think it was awesome so um i did say last episode and i feel like i need to do a slight correction that this was based on the heinland novel orphans of the sky i could not find any direct evidence that they based it on it or paid any rights for that it does use an extremely similar premise that was not uncommon in science fiction of this time as far as i could tell with a skimming of the research the heinlein novel is one of the earliest stories to use this premise uh, because it came out in the early 50s and by the time we get to this episode it is the late 60s but as far as i could tell it was not directly based they did not pay rights so more of the evolution of the idea through various science fiction by this point yes in that case uh, this episode was uh, written by Hendrix Volteris, who, uh, this is his only Star Trek writing credit. He did work with Roddenberry previously on a show called Mr. District Attorney. I wonder if that has something to do with lawyers. Possibly. So they did other television writing in this time period, uh, but this is the only thing that he wrote for Star Trek. He also wrote a couple episodes of Batman. Which Batman? <laughs> Uh, the, the 60s one, of course, oh, <laughs> out of West. <laughs> uh, we only have one particularly notable guest star. There is another person named uh, John Lorimer, who is only credited as old man and shows up for about five seconds. Yes, and uh, John Lorimer has been in Star Trek before, hasn't he? Oh, yeah, didn't he? He did look familiar. Uh, he's in Return of the uh, Archons as Tamar, and he's also in The Cage as Dr. Theodore Haskins, ah. uncredited. Okay, wonderful. <laughs> So, old hand finally dying. Yep. <laughs> the other guest star for this episode is Kate Woodville, who played Natira. Natira. A ridiculous alien name. She is British and came from many British shows from this time period, including something called Z Cars, which I was disappointed oh. to learn is not science fiction. It has something to do with police call signs in England. Yeah, the... I guess we're going to, you know, you know, so we're not going to be covering that then. Yeah. And also The Avengers, which is sometimes science fiction. Yes. <laughs> uh, she was in a lot of things. So she was also in Mission Impossible. Yes. One off. Right. One of those, every, like, basically every show you've heard of and a couple you ain't. Yep. Like Posse. Yeah. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> Sounds like some sort of mid-90s reality show. All right, I guess we should jump into the episode, and then I will talk a little bit about some of the other books that have used this premise, because this episode's very light on premise. It's sort of, it is exactly what it is doing, and that's about it. <laughs> so the Enterprise is under attack from old-school nukes, complete with chemical propulsion engines. Yeah, missiles incoming! We're being marked! What they're doing in space, who knows? But... Yeah. <laughs> Because uh, these are sub-light speed weapons that, you know, they, they're basically ICBMs. They could get to space, but to what point and purpose? These missiles are, in the grand scheme of this episode, not really important. This causes absolutely no threat to the Enterprise, which blows them out of the sky immediately, but they decide to trace them back to their origin. 
Meanwhile, Kirk is called to sickbay where McCoy has to report that he's done a crew physical and turned out one very troubling result. The fact that he has a condition that is incurable and he has about a year to live. I, I, McCoy, um, are you going to like retire then? Are you going to look for a cure? Are you going to... Wait, wait wait a moment. What is this? What, what repercussions does this have on the Kelvin timeline? It's <laughs> an interesting point. <laughs> he must not have gone wherever he picked it up in that timeline. Well, sucks to be that McCoy then. So they managed to trace the missile path back to an asteroid that appears to be the source of the attack. But it's a weird asteroid because it is moving under its own power. Mm -hmm. That's a little weird. Um, wait a moment. Are we having a Star Trek The Expanse crossover? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Several decades early, but... Yeah. <laughs> Star Trek was ahead of its time. Spock's scans indicate that the rock is in fact a hollow shell that contains a ship that has been in space for thousands of years and presumably all the passengers may be long dead. Hmm. Well, that sucks to be them, but hey, free spaceship. To compound this issue that they have found themselves in, this asteroid ship is on a collision course with an inhabited world that's going to reach in about a year. Well, um, if we're going to be hijacking it, I want to get up to it now as opposed to a year from now then. Yes, they're always diverting asteroids from smacking into things on this show. We're not going to necessarily interfere with the cultures of these planets, but we're going to at least maybe help them not just be wiped out randomly. I mean, at least that's better than some of the stuff they do later. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah you, you shouldn't interfere with the development of the culture on this planet, but if you prevent them from being blown up, no one would know. You know, the, the, is it really worrying about the natural evolution when something from outside the planet is going to come murder them all? Yeah, that's an interesting discussion to have. But not this week. <laughs> so Kirk and Spock decide that they're going to beam over and see about correcting the ship's course. Uh, McCoy insists on tagging along despite his illness. And, you know, also, if there's not supposed to be anyone alive there, there's not really a good point for have a doctor, I guess. No, not really. Hmm. But eh, he wants to go on more adventures, so I guess okay. They beam down to what looks like a planet, something that they even comment upon not making any frickin' sense. Yeah, that was kind of weird. Why in the world would you make a spaceship that's inside of a hollow shell that makes the inside of the spaceship look like a small planet? Well, uh, maybe we'll find out. And as soon as Spock comments on the lack of intelligent life forms, they're jumped by a group of armed men who emerge from various tubes that were coming out of the ground. Oh, wrong again, Spock. Ho-ho! <laughs> they quickly disarm the crew, except McCoy, who is doing a little better in the fight, until he's suddenly struck dumb by the appearance of a woman! And he kind of is like, oh, I, I'm going to sort of wave my hands here, and oh, okay. This is, of course, Natira, the high priestess of these peoples. She distracts McCoy long enough for him to get knocked out. Well, you know, I guess McCoy, uh, you know, he might be dying, but he still has urges, I guess. After they are all captured, they're taken to something called the Oracle, which turns out to be a large obelisk-looking thing that speaks like a computer voice. Well, this might be something related to the ship's systems, then. Hmm. It asks Natira about all the new people, and they try to explain that they've come to be friends, but then the Oracle says, well, then first know what it is to be my enemy, and shocks them all into unconsciousness. I think this Oracle's kind of a dick. Yeah. It's a weird, um, weird first contact protocol. If you want to be friends, first I torture you. <laughs> it's like, um... I don't know, it's like, well, if we want to, if maybe even our, in our species psychology, that's the best way to get someone to actually be honest with you, maybe, somehow? I suppose it's supposed to be a, like, you want to be our friends, fine, but know that I have the power to hurt you if yeah. you turn on me or something. Yeah, just sort of a, a friendly warning that will leave you passed out. But since you've already been captured, that seems a bit moot. Yeah, it's like, we're already at your mercy. Um, what's the point of this? I don't know. They wake up in another room, except for McCoy, because he was more affected by the knockout, whatever it is, probably because of his illness. Yeah, his xenopolysithemia, whatever it was. But he wakes up too. The only upshot to this is that now Spock knows that he's ill. And Spock, like, holds his shoulder like, I am expressing no emotions, but you are also my friend right now. They have a discussion about some very ill-defined goals of possibly telling people they're on a ship. 
but maybe not, no one's quite sure. Then a random crazy man shows up and tells them that he climbed the Forbidden Mountains and saw that the world is hollow and he touched the sky. And then he just says it a lot, grabs his head screaming and dies. Is this how they greet everybody here? You know, they first inflict you with pain and then have you watch an old man die? It's a weird culture. They go through a lot <laughs> of old men. Well, I guess they don't get uh, visitors that often, but, you know. <laughs> they see that apparently the old guy had some sort of implant in his temple. It's a little uh, red thing, jig sort of glowing under the skin or something. Natira comes back and orders the body to be removed, but is otherwise somewhat unconcerned because this man was obviously some sort of sinner. If all sinners are going to be, um, I guess, tortured to death by brain implants, um, I guess you just kind of become okay with it then. And she tells the crew that the Oracle has decided that they are guests and are allowed to wander around and eat and rest all they want. Oh, well, well that's nice. Uh, that probably means we're not going to be tortured to death. That's good. Kirk notes that Natira seems to be very interested in McCoy and orders that he get close to her for informational purposes. Kirk, you're not doing it yourself this time? No, I guess she's not as interested in Kirk for once, for some reason. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I guess the uh, Kirk does have the uh, the reputation of being the ladies' man, but if Kirk was not like on Star Trek, it'd be McCoy who was be at this reputation. That is true. Everyone else is celibate, as far as we can tell. Maybe not. Yes. Maybe not Chekhov. Uh, not, not Chekhov because he does fall in love with that one time, uh, and uh, Scotty on occasion, but he's also apparently both loves and hates women. Scotty's just creepy AF. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, she comes back and McCoy says that he's not feeling well so that he should wait around while everybody else does a tour. And she goes, oh, I'll wait with you. Hooray. Hmm. Okay. Let's talk. She explains that in their religion, the Oracle can see and hear their thoughts. And that's why the old man was punished to death because he was thinking and saying wrong things. Kind of maybe suggests then uh, that I don't, I want no part of this then. Um, Hopefully you don't ask me to implant one of those in my own head. She then tells him that in their culture, they're supposed to be super honest about their feelings. So let's get to that boning. Okay. <laughs> and McCoy's just kind of like, okay. <laughs> Later on, she also explains to him that they know they're traveling. And at some point we'll get to some new world that will be all green and verdant and great. And that he should come with them. And then he says that he's only got to live a year. And she goes, oh, that's fine then. Oh, well, it's still a year you get to hang out with me, and I'd be cool with that, you know? Meanwhile, Kirk and Spock sneak into the Oracle Chamber, who does not wake up immediately. Spock is able to identify the writing on the walls as Fabrini, which is a culture whose sun went nova several thousand years ago, but perhaps they sent out some sort of spaceship to save a bunch of people before their planet was destroyed. Uh, I'd also like to comment that the uh, the ancient text uh, is actually apparently based on uh, Korean, uh, Hanguma, Goma. I thought it looked a little familiar. Interesting. Sort of the, this, this blocky sort of uh, pattern thingamajig with, you know, sort of sub symbols in the various quarters and things like that. And apparently to confirm that this is indeed a Fabrini ship, they find a picture of a star system with eight planets because this apparently was the only star system with eight planets. Not like we know any other star systems with eight planets. Yeah, hmm. I wonder if there... I feel like there may be one that's that's very close to us right now. Anyway. I mean, I guess at the time, it had nine of them. Yes. <laughs> Maybe the Fabrini's had nine at the time, too. Pluto hadn't exploded yet. Yes. As they're poking around, Natira enters and asks the Oracle if she can take McCoy as a mate. And it goes, yep, as long as he accepts our mind controly ways. She goes, yay, I'll go tell him. All right. Well, um, well this is going to be a, a short romance, isn't it? Because, you know, McCoy would be stupid to get this brain implant. Then, as soon as she's going to leave, the Oracle notices Kirk and Spock and freezes them and orders them killed as soon as they thaw out. Well, well, why don't we just kill them here when they're incapacitated? No, you need to kill them later. Oh, for okay. reasons. Oracle reasons. <laughs> you wouldn't understand. <laughs> McCoy is not very pleased with this situation and somehow manages to get Nutira to agree to just send them back to the ship instead of killing them and basically exile them instead. Uh, but he 
decides that he's going to stay. So she does this as like a wedding present sort of sort of thing. Oh, okay. Well, that's kind of nice. I guess uh, yeah, McCoy gets to get married and uh, live out the rest of, uh, rest of his life with this uh, uh, nice lady before the uh, he either dies or the ship crashes into some planet. Mm-hmm. Great plan. Great plan. <laughs> Kirk is not very happy about this and even orders McCoy to come back to them, but he disobeys. Aha. Well, I guess if you kind of know your fate already, it... Yeah, he's like, you know what? I'd rather stay here and die with this hot woman who wants to sleep with me all the time instead of going back to this job that's making me drink myself to death on the Enterprise. But Kirk, you know, you've already put in the request for replacement by this point, so you should be okay with this. Yeah. <laughs> but he was going <laughs> to die anyway. Kirk and Spock leave him there and go back to the ship. McCoy gets the brain probe without comment or anything he's just there and he gets it and that's all now okay so i guess he did get the implant yeah hmm as soon as he is given the implant he's now one of them and they tell him about this book that was hidden in one of the altars in the oracle room that's apparently the big book of everything that's going to tell them what to do when they get to the new planet Hmm. Wait, wait a moment is this the is this the official star trek tech manual it's the asteroids owner's <laughs> manual on the ship kirk has asked starfleet what to do and gets ordered back to his previous mission even being told that starfleet is going to send out a ship to take care of this and he should no longer worry about it well okay um uh, bye mccoy but no sooner is he off the phone with the admiral mccoy calls and tells them about the book Well, I guess we should probably forward this to the other ship that's coming by. This apparently is enough to get him Oracle punished, and the thingy in his head goes off, forcing him to the floor, but Kirk and Spock decide that they're just going to beam aboard as soon as Natera is trying to get them to save McCoy. Um, She immediately gets grabbed by Kirk because she's upset that they, like, you know, he was talking to them and then was going to die because it's their fault that he thought-crimed. She should also maybe be a little angry that they're not exiled anymore right now. Yeah, that possibly, too. <laughs> she has a lot of reason to be, be, you know, be upset with them. Kirk grabs her away and lets Spock remove the brain implant thingy, which apparently saves McCoy immediately. That's all. Kirk yells at Natira until she, I guess, believes that they're on a spaceship. But I thought she... I don't understand because she knows that they're going somewhere. So apparently the only problem is whether or not you call it a planet or a spaceship. So... This kind of begs the question, does she even know what a spaceship is? I guess not, maybe. But she's like, oh my god, now I know the truth. And she runs off to the Oracle room and goes, what is the truth? And the Oracle goes, there's many truths. Who's to say what's true, what's not true? Uh, I think you're hedging your bets here, Oracle. Hmm. Uh, she's questioning it too much and tries to get brain implanted to death but then the rest of the crew show up and remove her brain implant thing same as they did with mccoy and now she's safe but the oracle decides that now it has to turn the heat up in the room to kill them (laughs) instead so it could just sort of randomly shock people uh, arbitrarily but now it has to heat up the room to like cook them yeah mccoy tells spock how to find the book thing and spock frantically looks through the index Well, it is a pretty big book, to be honest. (laughs) It is. I mean, it's one of the only times that's like, oh, we have to find some information in this giant book and we have very little time. Is there an index? Spock finds what they're looking for, just figures out that if they just push the middle of the oracle for a long time, it moves and lets them into the control room. So you got to tickle the computer to make it open up for you. There, they find all the controls, everything's good, they find a fault in one of the vacuum tubes that is making the ship go off course, and they correct it and put it back under automated control. It's like this place was built with 1950s technology. Yeah, it is like that, isn't it? (laughs) Also, Spock finds a database of super useful information that they collected from the old planet, including a lot of super advanced medical technology. Oh, this could uh, potentially uh, push forward, uh, you know, decades or even centuries. Uh, if we uh, just happen to make a copy while we're here and, you know, basically steal it from these people. Yeah, basically. It's a <laughs> finder's fee. Yeah, you, know, you know, we saved your entire civilization, I guess. Uh, maybe it's maybe it's fair, I guess. And... Later, McCoy has been saved by this super advanced medical technology. Hooray! Wait, they knew how to cure this thing that... 
Yeah, they're low Cuban enough, Apparently. I guess. <laughs> and now, since McCoy's no longer going to die, and the ship is no longer going to crash into a planet, McCoy has no reason to stay. I thought you got, like, got hitched, man. Yeah, so he leaves. Natira says she's never going to leave her people, because makes sense, she's their leader. So they beam back to the Enterprise, and McCoy's slightly sad, but Kirk says, well, they're going to reach their destination in about a year or so, so maybe we can go meet them then. Oh, that'd be cool. The end. The end. <laughs> and we've never heard about these people ever again. Nope. Also, what's the... I, I just cannot figure out the conflict that they are having on this thing. Like, they're supposed to not know that they're on a ship, but they know that they're mm -hmm. on a planet that's small and moves and is going somewhere, and that people from outside space and, and who weren't on the planet can suddenly show up, and it doesn't seem yes. to phase them. Yes. So what is it that are they <laughs> they just bothered that you call it an asteroid instead of a planet? Sometimes uh, the doctrines of particular religions are very particular about their what you call what. Well, I think we'll get to that later because I, I do think that they were trying to make a weird indictment of religion here, but they did not show us a religion. They showed us an authoritarian dictatorship. Uh, with the, the trappings of a religion, but, you know... Like a, Plenty of uh, you know dictatorships do that in various, very kind of funky in different ways. So yeah, yeah. This is a, a system of control, not really a faith. But this one is a direct system of control. So you can you can manipulate faith into a system of control, and that is usually enforced through a certain amount of social structures that are set up around the faith. So someone says, I'm questioning this idea, and everyone around you goes, No, don't do that. It's great. All of our faith stuff says it's great. And then, you know, your entire social support system is based on believing this set of things. Uh, this is, if you think wrong, you die. Yes. <laughs> and everyone's just kind of okay with this. Yeah, so it's a much more direct, you know, top-down sort of control as opposed to using the dynamics of the faith to, you know, run the show. It's more... I guess it's it's using the religion as an excuse to do this thing as opposed to the actual method of control. I suppose, yeah, but the religion is basically unnecessary at this point because if you don't do what the thing wants you to, you get killed. So superfluous. <laughs> so you either do it or you die. The faith bit is unimportant. I, I do kind of have to wonder if this is how the system started off at the beginning of their journey, or has this become some sort of avenue they've slowly angled towards uh, because the, the controller system, the Oracle, is clearly malfunctioning because its navigation system is going off. But maybe that's not the only thing that's broken down. Yeah, maybe the whole, you know, the whole system is coming, uh, coming apart slowly because it has been you know, in space for thousands of years without anyone who knows how to maintain it. And that gets us into, that actually brings us into some of the other ways that this story has been used. The one that I am most familiar with, as I've said before is Orphans of the Sky by Heinlein. And that also uses the trappings of religion, being that the people who are on the ship do not realize they are on a ship. They do not realize that anything outside of the ship exists. So the only reason that they maintain general maintenance, fueling, and whatnot of the ship is because it has been turned into a religion and the religious ceremonies are directly related to ship upkeep and maintenance. So you, you instead of ha you know, going to church and uh, praying and uh, you know, uh, you know, doing your communion wafers or something like that, uh, or you know, you know, doing certain you know, you know, very, very symbolic things, you're going out and doing very material things that are actually helping the ship, but you don't actually know why they are doing, why you do this, just as this is part of the faith. Which is a very common thing that pretentious sci-fi writers said about religion in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. That it is basically a pointless thing that people just do repetitively with no understanding of why they are doing it. It's maybe selling it all a little short. Uh, I won't say that I'm a you know, religious person by any, by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, I guess... I do also believe that there is more to it than just sort of the practices uh, of the faith. And also, if you 
when you're looking at something like this, like not to just nitpick the idea because I see what they're going for, but you can't just rote memorize something like spaceship repair. You have to understand how the system is functioning in order to fix it when it goes wrong. You can do some very, very routine maintenance, but that would be about it. Now, unless you know, part of your system of faith is to completely manufacture new parts constantly and replace those out with the only slightly not working parts whenever you know you know some special signs appear on the you know in your whatever your system is yeah then you're going to eventually run into a situation where something goes wrong that your faith does not really have an answer for it sort of aside here uh, there i have seen a few variations of this uh system a few times uh one of the ones that is kind of coming to mind i might be remembering this wrong was actually uh from doctor who uh, except instead of being a generation ship that's, you know, between stars, it's actually a spaceship that's been crashed on a planet. And <laughs> the, the whole, you know, you know uh, orthopraxical uh, sort of a mode came about because it would just take so long to repair the ship that they <laughs> started developing this thing to sort of get, make sure the, the, the work gets done and so they could take off. Um, and they didn't realize that they were done fixing it. <laughs> so like, oh, yeah, everything's good to go. And the doctor shows up and she's like, yeah, you guys can leave. So why haven't you? Oh, we can do that. <laughs> that's an interesting premise. See, that's again the same thing of saying that the religion is holding them back from understanding what's going on. And even in this story, which didn't do much with this thing that they are pretending is a religion, um, the instant that someone from the outside tells them the facts of the situation, the religion is broken is not really how religion works. There's a lot more that goes into it as far as the psychology. You know, there's the whole reason a lot of folks who talk about religion talk about the this notion of faith, where it's sort of something the person has come to believe so strongly that they don't need evidence for it. And so you coming in here with evidence that contradicts it can be very easily sort of disregarded. Like, yeah, I, what? <laughs> It doesn't make any sense to me because my premises of how I see the world are very different from yours. So you're just kind of coming in here with this very alien concept and uh, just doesn't come through. Well, they often don't have to be very different, right? Because we like the purpose of religion is something that's very up in the air and needs a lot more discussion than we would be able to give it here. But mm -hmm. the the general thing, and one reason that I am not a religious person, but I generally would call myself an agnostic, is because I have to accept that there are certain things that you just cannot know as a person, because there are certain limits to your experience and ability to perceive and know things, which is where religion comes into play. The general thing that we've had for a long time now, and an uh, argument that I've gotten into when I was younger and was skewing more atheistic is that religion and science are somehow opposite, but one handles a different thing than the other does. Science is very much about things that we can observe and measure and test. Anything that you can't test or disprove is by its very definition unscientific because you have to be able to test and disprove things for you to use the scientific method on it. So anything in that realm is more on the side of either religion or philosophy where you are not working with testing and disproving things. Exactly. Uh, th though there are some folks that would claim that their religion is scientific in some fashion, the, 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 it usually comes from a not understanding what science is. Um, that, that they assume that science is, you know, you know, you know dem is, demonstration of truth and since they have their truth to their religion that they are on the same footing in the same realm but that's not really what science is uh it is about investigating the world and interpreting the results from based on our observations and we got to that with a lot of um there were definitely some power struggles in both directions the church uh earlier in the world had a lot of you know financial and political power that they felt could be challenged by various things but even more recently um a lot of people who are trying to prescribe to scientific thinking basically attack and demonize religion as holding it back but most if not all early science was religious 
especially in the Western world. Like most early scientists were trying to prove religious things. They were trying to prove what was in the Bible or test what was going on. And we still use some of the basic ideas from that. Like Newton and early physicists were not trying to disprove anything about religion. Their entire basic premise was if God made the world, we need to understand how it functions. Yeah. Yes. You know, if you then know the world, then you will understand God. Yes. That was the basic idea for science in the Western world for thousands of years. In a, I guess, sort of interesting twist, uh, you know, the, the works of Aristotle were very popular for quite some time to such a point that, you know, the to question them would be to effectively be questioning the faith of those who uh, trusted in his results, uh, and it's sort of you know the the so so a lot of the things that people sort of you know attribute in the modern day to you know religion holding things back was also kind of working to hold science back because everyone only trusted this source. So anything that knew that came along is like nah can't be true it would contradict Aristotle. I guess that's always one of the things that kind of like. You know, you know, it reminds me that sometimes the thing we need to do is to question our assumptions and, you know, just sort of assuming everyone, you know, that, you know, avoid arguments from authority, I guess is maybe the lesson from that. Well, you still get that now because how many times do you have like this is the study that we're believing this week, especially in just for an example, something like nutrition which is mm -hmm. a very quick-moving, difficult-to-understand field of study that people want to take very direct real-world lessons from. So that is the old joke every other week, bananas are good for you or cause cancer, because it all depends on which study you happen to be looking at at the time. Yeah, well, I do have radioactive potassium, but you know. <laughs> Most people are not privy to the scientific discussion that goes on in scientific journals and the things that you know most lay people do not interact with where you have these long-running scientific arguments between different groups that are both think their results are equally valid and are criticizing the way that the other found theirs yeah so uh, you know science is not this monolithic uh you know uh, structure or idea uh, or set of results it is an ongoing discussion. So I, I've been in, in, in scientific field for, for a while. Uh, do you have any questions for me as far as this stuff goes, Gepwin? I don't think I do offhand. I don't know what would be a useful overview for people who maybe don't spend time like looking at random scientific studies online for research on different projects. So even though I have not been in the scientific field, I do have to look at studies and things for various research for a couple of things that I do. Well, I guess some general rules of thumb is uh, the there there is unfortunately sort of a prestige thing with different journals that you get where you know a journal this journal is more likely to have good science in it compared to this one, uh, but still the good journals can still have crap in them. Um, so do be careful about that. Uh, the the be I guess mindful that there are instances where there is some sort of long-running unspoken argument in a particular subfield or field that isn't necessarily going to be obvious when the things were reported on or they're, once again, in, in publications and papers, that it is someone in the field will know what's going on here, but someone outside of it looking in will see this result and be like, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense, despite it being more of a a weird language game in order to get back as somebody else <laughs> this happens it's kind of annoying i once went to a dinosaur museum when i was a kid that i forget the people's names right now but there is this weird argument that's been going on for years about whether tyrannosaurus rex is a predator or a scavenger and this museum was run by one of the two main people who was in that argument and they had an entire section of their museum dedicated to explaining all the reasons that the other person was wrong. So yeah, there, there is perhaps moments of bias where you have to be sort of uh, mindful of things. Uh, you also sometimes get complete kooks that get their papers published somehow. I've seen this a few times. Uh, it's more likely to show up in something like the, uh, the, uh, the, the archive or the next 
where you don't necessarily have to act, actually publish, you know, get through the full, full uh, peer review process here. But I've also seen peer review papers that were just complete nonsense. Uh, and it's like, okay, this is an interesting idea, but if this is true, then the universe should be exploding constantly. <laughs> I don't want to call out anything specific because I don't feel that I have anything useful right now to say about any specific group that has done this because it's happened multiple times. But you have all kinds of things that come about because one person who was often deliberately misrepresenting their data for their own personal reasons puts out a study a lot of people you know find it and believe it and think it makes sense and then that's it no matter how many times it's refuted or changed or challenged like people have their one study and what is like you know obviously you would have to dig into the scientific literature a lot to understand what's going on with some of that so to most people there really isn't a significant difference to believing one study over another aside from the fact that this group told you that it was okay and this group told you that it wasn't if that you're only sort of able to get it from this very top level stuff then it kind of becomes a us versus them sort of dynamic and that could lead to all sorts of trouble when you know, there is some very good reason maybe you should listen to the other side. Yeah, especially with the way we do science reporting, which is something we've talked about before on this show. Like, why should you, just because this person's, like, this one group of scientists is saying that this study is bad, but, like, some of their studies are said to be bad by the other people. Who are you supposed to believe unless you are versed enough in what you're looking at to be able to read the original studies? I guess in that particular instance to take a step back and, you know, I guess first question if there's maybe some sort of larger dynamic here that's not super obvious, because it might not be the, the argument might not be about, you know, so who, who's doing the better science, uh, you know, you know, the, I guess the classic example of this is uh, climate change deniers, because there's the folks that study climate change and like, yeah, this is a real thing that's happening. And there's people that create studies that are completely paid for by the oil industry, but they do their best to make it look like a legit study. So someone from the outside looking at it will be able to tell the difference from you know, the other side. Um, but the, but, but if you were actually in the know, you'd be able to tell quite easily here. Uh, so you have to sort of, you know, if you're not willing or able to get into the, the nitty gritty of these things, you know, taking a look and see if there's these larger dynamics uh, at play, especially if someone's getting paid. Um, which is, you know, the, I guess the inverse of this has also been attempted to smear, uh, you know, people that, you know, that you know, say climate change is real. But the, the, I guess the easy comeback is that, you know, these people are the ones that are struggling. Not, they're the ones that aren't getting paid very much at all while they study this stuff. <laughs> well, the other side is like, yeah, we got another million dollar study coming in that will get basically just a copy of the, uh, last year's paper. Yep. <laughs> well, we do have a lot of problems that, almost stem from the way that we've started treating science like it's a religion because mm -hmm. you get the one you get the study and you believe the study and then if someone else comes out with a different study it's now challenging your religious faith instead of it being an ever-changing thing that just always changes yeah that's why i like to say that science is more of a conversation than a set of established uh things uh you know sometimes some of those elements of the conversation are fairly well set but if there is something that you know extraordinary comes up to, to make us question those, we should be willing to do that. Um, but as far as you know, this, this, this stuff on the more I guess the unsettled end of things, you know, we just need to remember that this is an ongoing process. It's not it's not concluded yet. Well, there's some things that are like I'm I'm reminded of this, and I'm forgetting the terms now because there's theory, hypothesis, and what was the other law? Conclusion? Oh. There were like several levels. There's like theory, hypothesis, and law, and each one is a different part of the science thing. But what it basically boiled down to was I was looking up this argument that people have that, you know, the whole evolution's only a theory sort of idea. And you have like this confusion when you're talking about a lot of things in science because you have things like animals change over time as gener from generation to generation because of mutation, which is just an observable phenomenon that we can see and document. 
Then you have the why is that happening, which is where you get into the theories and explanations that are always changing. Yeah, your hypotheses and theories and uh, various other you know, nitty gritty you know ideas that are all wrapped into the process. So even something like gravity, which we still don't completely understand why it's happening to some extent, like when you drop something, it falls towards the large, the nearest largest object, and that is something that we can demonstrate and record the why it's happening is where you're getting into the explanatory science and testing well technically the object's not uh falling uh just through space its future time arrow has been bent so that it has a spatial component not just a pure time component does it help if i think <laughs> if she is a large plastic mat um it can but that doesn't have the full full uh, nuances of the mathematics spherical chickens in a vacuum yes <laughs> I'm tempted to talk, uh, you know, talk about some of the stuff I've been uh, thinking about in terms of general relativity to hyperspace recently, but maybe that's for another time. <laughs> well, I didn't necessarily mean as to get into the big science versus religion discussion, but it is like it's been annoying me in science fiction from this era how it's just a let's have an indictment of religion and that's fine, especially with how everyone talks about how great Gene Roddenberry was in this area of Star Trek because he was a humanist. I'm cool with people being human. I'm cool so. with it too, but it doesn't make you some kind of god. In fact, it shouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you don't replace one kind of god with another. <laughs> you know, I mentioned earlier that you know maybe this in this episode the uh, the religion that is as it is presented has evolved in some fashion, and that's maybe something to maybe uh, you know touch on as far as the real world and how religion has sort of evolved over time. Uh, one of the th things that I've been sort of uh, picked up either through my own observations or through taking classes is that a lot of times the early sorts of rev uh, you know, religions sort of, sort of started out as, okay, we're going to kind of have some things that will both explain the universe, but also maybe keep us from eating this thing that's going to kill us, <laughs> <laughs> which is, you know, it's very practical sort of stuff. And, you know, like, uh, like don't eat shellfish sort of stuff. It's like, yeah, if, we don't know which ones are going to kill us. That's maybe a good thing to avoid. Um, and, you know, and, and so the, it, it's, it's, you get sort of a set of rules and things like that. Some of them are very hands-on and practical that have now been sort of the uh, codified. And over time, they get uh, sort of expanded or evolved or whatever as, you know, various incarnations of religion uh, sort of uh, uh, push forward. And there, there's, there's, there's a a process that has been sort of observed from, you know, in multiple different uh, corners of the world that, you know, sometimes it takes in very similar directions or completely different directions uh, as far as how the, you know, faith from, you know, very ancient uh, eras has kind of, you know, turned into what it is in the more modern day. Um, and so it's sort of interesting sort of to think about these processes and the motivations that sort of encourage them. Uh, then, you know, sometimes like um, there's a moment of that there's a big need for reformation sort of uh, needed in what, you know, what's going on. That's very a political and social thing, but it comes about due to a religious aspect uh, that, that, uh, that someone, you know, that there's a, a power structure in place that is uh, unkind to some group of people. And because a religious leader comes forward and sort of organizes the people that have been disaffected, they knew, now start a new uh, faith, and they then are able to use that faith to uh, overcome the power structures that are present in that part of the world, and then you know, expand from there. Uh, that's kind of basically how Islam got its, uh, you know, itself started. Uh, there is you know, a very tribalistic uh, you know, uh, social structure going on in Saudi Arabia at the time. And, you know, they're, they're, then this new for, uh, force came together with this sort of unified com uh, community where they were sort of treated as their own tribe, but it was also a group that was able to recruit others from, uh, from uh, you know, the other tribes in order to sort of, you know, ex expand their numbers. And soon everyone was kind of on board. And so instead of this very disunited and at odds uh, situation, the society suddenly you have a more unified uh, 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 caliphate, which is, you know, the, you know, the early uh, community there. Um, and so, yeah, it, I, I guess it's very sort of interesting to me to sort of think about these changes and how they evolve and sort of what motivates them uh, and how they, you know, 
affect religion as opposed, you know, as opposed to just religion affecting everything else. I do think that that's a really interesting place to go with things like this. And it isn't like, it is an interesting thing to look at in this type of story when you have a very weird isolated situation and you're looking at the social structures that evolve within it. The main problem that I hit with how they were presenting it in this episode is this central control idea because you can't really even think about it as the society evolved and the religion changed over time to better represent what was going on within the society and whether that was a good thing or not because it's all directly dictated by this computer. So you could say something like, well, the computer is malfunctioning and changing, but then it's basically just saying that your leader is starting to go crazy, but you still have to do what your leader says, which is not really an interesting or useful thing to examine. It's like, well, yeah, yeah, don't (laughs) give an unstable person the power of life and death over every person in a society I think that's a pretty valid point, but it's not a particularly interesting one. It's fairly self self defining there. Maybe it's one that we need to hear more often, though. <laughs> but yeah, it's not a very interesting story uh, at the end of the day. So I have to agree with you. So I think we got to some interesting things with it, but overall, just this was too ill defined to be able to figure out what they're trying to tell us with any of this. They don't know. Mm-hmm. We're we're not sure whether they're supposed to know they're on a spaceship whether they're supposed to think there's a world outside, why they're not bothered by people coming from the world they don't know is outside, where do they think they're going? Also, aren't they going to the planet that they were going to crash into? Because they were going to crash into it in 360-some-odd days, and then they say they're going to get there in 360-some-odd days. But Mm -hmm. there's already a lot of people there. Yeah, That that would be an interesting (laughs) place to go, of like if you sent a generational ship off... 2000 like a thousand something years ago and then by the time you got there the uninhabited planet you were aiming for has a full functional society there and they don't like you much uh this is actually a idea that kind of comes up with to question the idea of generation ships that if you send a uh, generation ship out and it's going to take you say 300 years to get to its destination but during those 300 years uh someone makes a big breakthrough and another ship can get there in 20 years and so you've you arrive there, and maybe centuries have passed since this planet was uh, settled, and they are don't have the room for you now. Try not to curse too much on the show, but not picking them up on the way was kind of a dick move. Maybe it's uh, you know a, a a issue that if they were to intercept, they'd have to speed up and then slow down and then speed up again, and that would be too much fuel use or something like that. Or maybe they did a, like a holly hop drive. <laughs> <laughs> Just blow them anyway, up on the way travel. by accidentally. <laughs> I mean, by the time we get anywhere, we are going, I don't know. What's the closest, the closest planet is what? 30 some odd light Uh, years? Not like the closest near earth planet. There's, I, I know that, uh, I think Tau Ceti has, has actual planets. Uh, how far is Tau Ceti from earth? Alexa. (laughs) (laughs) There's also, uh, uh, Epsilon Iridani, I believe has at least one planet. Uh, Tau Ceti is about 12 light years. It looks like. All right, so it's going to take you 2,000 years to get there, and then the information that you have from that planet is already 12 years out of date because you were looking at it. I knew that uh, Tau Ceti had uh, you know, a bunch of uh, planets around it uh, because, you know, for uh, 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 Stellar Renaissance, I actually looked that up because that's where uh, you guys started off. <laughs> Hooray, something most of our viewers are not familiar with. <laughs> All right, we're pushing an hour here, so I don't know if we had any other places to go with this one. Uh, I did want to touch on very quickly uh, some of the uh, downsides of generation ships. Well, there's all the radiations. There's trying to have a self-sustaining ecosystem in that small of an area. Yeah, and I, I will actually give them credit because uh, because of the radiation, you actually do need some sort of uh, crazy outer shell to help protect the uh, the contents here. So just Putting it inside of an asteroid kind of makes sense, yeah, actually. Big old rock. Uh, yeah, you, you probably want to have several layers of different materials to you know soak up different uh, you know energies to raise and things like that. But uh, overall, having a lot of material between you and space is probably a good idea. So I'll give them uh, credit there. But the biosphere of this 
system here is clearly in the episode falling apart. It's like, yeah, we're here on this rocky inside of a planet here, asteroid thing, and it, I don't see any life here. And oh, I guess everyone's hiding down below. <laughs> so yeah, you know, this this and there's also, I guess, maybe some ethics uh, questions about: Is it right to set up a society that? For you know, several generations or perhaps hundreds of generations, you're going to have to have people that are fully committed to this mission each generation. And to have them not be is to basically uh, force them to die. I mean, you could make exactly the same argument for how we set up any society. I saw this. In, like, this is stuck with me. It was a joke. But I saw someone on Twitter who had what I thought was an interesting point that, you know, basically 22 years ago, two people decided to have sex and now I have to pay rent. <laughs> that, that's how our world works <laughs> so i can see the ethical debate but arguably you are already making decisions for any future generation just you know what decisions you're making will affect their life uh option a you you know if you're if you're planning to have kids and all that is uh it's going to be they're going to be sticking around in this world or option b they're going to be on a spaceship and perhaps they their their uh, descendants will eventually you know land on a planet and have make their own decision themselves someday, um, yeah. So it's kind of kind of a boot point overall. Yeah, I don't see an appreciable an appreciable difference. Maybe the ethical question is, you know, is it right to you know uh, uh, you know put the spaceship through all this 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 trial and and long distance travel? <laughs> I mean, you'd have to be very, very sure that a spaceship like that was going to get anywhere because you do have that, like, are you dooming a bunch of people? <laughs> How much general risk are you willing to put this society through? Though we also make that decision for a lot of people. Some of this, though, you know, has encouraged the ideas uh, of sort of different modifications for this. Uh, for instance, instead of sending actual people, you just send a bunch of robots and genetic library. And so they artificially grow the people on the far side and suddenly you have a colony that has no uh, specific memory of their home world or, you know, really any social connection except through the materials that were provided with. Uh, and if it fails, then you don't have anyone die in the process. You just lose a bunch of genetic material. Uh, another option is, of course, the sleeper ship where you put everyone in some sort of hibernation or something like that. And, you know, so the, you know, the maintaining biosphere isn't really necessary. You just have to maintain the ship systems. But still, you have to worry about things, you know, surviving that long. Well, that one is just doesn't have any particular ethical concerns at all, because the same people who get on the ship are the people who get off the ship, and they made the decision about how dangerous they thought it was at the beginning. Exactly. So you're not dooming some unknown generations you know, several uh, centuries down the line to uh, an uncertain doom because you messed up, you know, with uh, a mathematical conversions when you're engineering project. <laughs> it's just going to be you instead. <laughs> I mean, overall. We do have this thing, like a generational ship is the only way that we could reach some of these distant planets, so it's an interesting to look at. And then we also have the general of, like, why would we do such a thing? We don't like our neighbors here. <laughs> Are we going to like our neighbors better there? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> well, well, maybe it's a, it's a thing where it's like we could choose our neighbors there. <laughs> All right, you, you and you, let's go colonize a planet over here. Uh, and yeah, to a certain degree, as our society on Earth uh, develops, uh, there might be uh, instances where there is a uh, minority group that is like, all right, our way of life is falling apart because we have to live in this greater society. So we're going to leave and please don't follow us uh, sort of stuff, uh, which I believe the Expanse uh, you know, has that with the Mormons. Like, yeah, we're, we're trying to like have lots of kids and we're not allowed to do that anymore. So we're going to like skip out. The one often questions how they got that much uh, power and influence to be able to accomplish that. Like the Mormons came out west originally uh, because we were doing a lot of the western expansion stuff and they were just part of one of the groups that we wanted to get rid of. Same with the original colonization of the Americans by Europeans and the original colonization of Australia by Europeans. We're going to you know, set up a prisoner colony over there and send people over and and uh, you know we're going to send some pilgrims to... New England, because we don't want them, you know, budding up our religion here. <laughs> so I suppose that makes uh, StarCraft the most realistic of these off-Earth colony things I've ever seen, where we just tried to ship off a lot of undesirable people and they randomly crashed somewhere. 
That's kind of kind of weird to think about, actually. Starcraft, the sociologically more accurate science fiction. <laughs> well, if you look at our history, it is the only reason we have ever colonized anywhere. That's, you know, if we're if we're not colonizing, we're just going showing up and uh, and uh, exploiting people that are already there. <laughs> well, we do both. That's more of a taking over as opposed to colonizing. Six of one, half a dozen of the other. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, uh, I, I think I'm about uh, out of uh, topics here. Uh, got anything else? No, and I think we've, I mean, this is, this is another one of those ones that they didn't give us anything, so we talked about whatever we felt like. Yes. <laughs> it happens. But now I think we're done with that, and it's time for the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show! Hey everybody, welcome back to the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show, where we have tallied up the various points from our various contestants, and we have some winners to announce. Are you excited, Gepwin? Oh, so excited. Mm, me too. Uh, in fact, uh, so excited that uh, we're going to go ahead and roll this off here with um, one that's a ha- has some implications, but it's not that bad. Carry the whip. Because when a problem comes along, you better whip it. <laughs> Oh, this joke makes no sense. Anyway, this one goes to McCoy and the Fabrini people for having devices installed in their heads that will kill them if they question the doctrine too much. What do they win, Gapwood? They all win some S&M gear because it's consensual, more fun, and there's an equal amount of whipping. Oh, I'm, I'm in there. Oh. <laughs> Our second prize is the Even in the Future Nothing Works prize, which goes to the Oracle for being on the fritz or requiring repair, but... Also being bad about letting anyone know it needs to be fixed up. What does it win, Gepwin? The Oracle wins just the time-untested big boot, because even in the future when nothing works, you kick it really hard. <laughs> so uh, maybe uh, if we uh, ever do this uh, sort of scheme for ourselves in the future, part of the uh, ceremonies that should be uh, celebrated is we uh, just randomly kick the Oracle. Yes, well, it was part of the Tuesday's worshipping ceremony. <laughs> Our third prize is the TV Love Story prize that's been, uh, you know, because of uh, McCoy and uh, Natira uh, building up enough points here. They just sort of fall in love, get married, then break it off before the end of the episode. Uh, where do they win, Gepwin? McCoy and Natira win a starter marriage. They get married and then divorced immediately because it just wasn't a good time, but, you know, they got tax breaks or something. I'd never understood the logic of that because you usually wind up paying more taxes, but I guess people have it figured out somehow maybe maybe one of them won the lottery and they needed to do uh, some sort of weird tax write-off system anyway <laughs> our final award is the truman experience award which goes to, to the fabrini for not really knowing they're in some sort of spaceship man what do they win Gipwin? the fabrini win a much more interesting premise if you took this exact same thing and told me that it was an alien reality show this would have been a way better episode mm-hmm I will have to agree, because you broke up there for a few seconds. Anyway. <laughs> also, I guess we should put Truman Show on our future movie list. I was actually thinking about that before we got recorded. But um, anywho, um, that's all the prizes I got to hand out here. Uh, there were some other points that were racked up, but not enough for a full win. So um, take it away, Gepwin. Well, thank you to all of our contestants and all of you listeners for sticking around for this installment of the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show! Hey, next week we got something that I've heard of. Heard of? Yeah. So is this more Star Trek? Never seen, but it's one of the more famous episodes. Indeed. Um, oh, after that is one of the most famous episodes for a bad reason. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of that one for bad reasons. <laughs> Let's just think about next week for the moment, though. <laughs> uh, we, I, 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 I recall the, uh, the next episode has us... Uh, Meet the Defiant. Yeah, the next episode is the Tholian Web, which, yes, they do meet the Defiant. We're going to have Cisco. Wait, no. <laughs> At least they do in the alternate history mirror mirror universe thing they did in Enterprise. I can't remember much else of this one. Oh, yeah, USS Defiant. There it is. 
you know, we're not going to be uh, doing a DS9 classic Star Trek uh, crossover, but uh, the, the, it just uh, sh- happens to share a name, you know. So yes, Tholian Web, one of the more well-known episodes, possibly because it has a short title that's easy to remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, other than that, I know absolutely nothing about it other than it involves a Tholian and some sort of web. Everything that I know about this episode is from the reference they did to it in, in that one Enterprise episode that I mentioned a minute ago. Yeah, um, and I perhaps know even less because I've not seen that episode. <laughs> so, Tholian webs. Yep, something about the ship being trapped by crystal dudes, crystalline thingamabobs. Who, crystalline entities, oh no! Yeah, who make uh, some sort of shrinking net majig around the ship. I do not know how they get out of it or any other particulars, but I guess we'll find out what in the world's going on with this next week on Watchers of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, let's check out the Tholian's website. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Mori's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs>